Some of you may recognize me. I've been here before. Um, I'd like to say that it's good to be back, but it seems to me that something's gone really wrong if I'm here preaching today. I mean, y'all must have been sinning like extra last week. You got no sick, right? And then, and then, Tim, how many people did you have to call before you got to me? About four or five. Four or five. I'm number six, right? That's a bad number in the Bible, right? So, uh, and it gets worse, right? Because this guy has the nerve to call me like 36 hours ago and say, hey, can you preach? Right? Like, I just thought of it this morning. That's not a long time if I hadn't had something. To, right? Like, you're just thinking, I'm going to start writing. But I was in Louisiana. Right? Tim calls. I'm on I-10. It's a long way from 90, right? It's pretty far south. So, yeah? Oh, you want me to preach? Well, I just happen to be working on a sermon, which is a whole other story, right? But, uh... Okay, sure, I'll do it. He's elated, right? I drive three hours to Houston. I get on a flight. I land in Baltimore. And, and you know it's bad when, when the flight attendant gets on the PA and says, Hey, everyone, listen up. Um, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Like, what's the first thing you immediately worry, right? I get a text on my phone that says, Your flight to Providence has been canceled. But we've rebooked you for Tuesday. Literally, three days, what am I supposed to do? So, the whole airport is filled with people who are angry, long lines, everyone's flight got cancelled, I don't know what the deal is, but uh, I call, hey, can I get to Boston? Sure, we'll book you tomorrow for one o'clock, that's not going to work. Okay, so, no rental cars, no hotels, Uber's crazy, I get on on a train at 10, ride the train through the night. There was no sleep. Okay, like it was bumper car slash roller coaster from from Baltimore to New York. So you you try sleeping on on that and then um, got here, you know, thankfully my friend Dave picks me up at 645. I I haven't had a wink of sleep in in about 30 hours. Okay, so that's where we're starting out. And if it all goes badly, it's your fault. Okay, just want to be clear about that. Uh, so, what would really help, right? Because I'm, I'm feeling okay right now, but it's gonna, it's, we're, we're probably gonna crash. So, what I really would, I know it's not typical, right? But like, there's this thing people do in churches sometimes, and they, they say this word, it's amen, right? Spontaneously, it's fine. You know, maybe even a hallelujah, that would do me some good. Like, I might need some encouragement to, to keep, it will well up a spirit inside me so I can keep going. And I guarantee, like, Tim, there's nowhere in the blue book, right, where you can get excommunicated for doing that, right? And you, get, you just got to tap, thank you. Alice, thank you. I knew she was going to be there for me. But, but she can't carry the whole church, all right? I need lots of people. Just tap into your inner Pentecostal. All right, look, we're going to get going. Um, I, thank you, right? There's more of that. Yeah, we need, we need to get going on the word. Um, I've never preached this. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm going to keep track, okay? So, uh, I'm working out of the ESV. I don't know if, if you are, if you can change it up 
fast uh, because that's what I'm going to be reading now. You can turn to Mark 4. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be looking at mostly the end of that. But I um, uh, need to introduce the context, right? So Mark 4, Mark is, is um, probably the gospel that was written first in, in all the chronology, the shortest. Uh, Mark 4 is centering on some of Jesus' teachings, and he's, in this part of the Bible, he's up in the north of Israel, in um, uh, the region of the Galilee. And that's where a lot of the uh, disciples and the apostles are from. And uh, in this case, he's on the, the shores of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching crowds of people that are so vast that he's got to get into a boat to address them. And, it, you know, the, the, passage, or the, uh, the chapter starts out, and basically most of the chapter is parables. And if you're not familiar with what the parable is, it, it's a story with, with a meaning. It's trying to teach through telling a story. And some of these parables are, are very familiar to you. Even if you haven't read Mark, you probably have heard something about the parable, the sower. That's about the word of God being um, effective in, in different people's lives. It, parable of the growing seed, that's about the kingdom and how it grows without our knowledge or understanding. Uh, parable of the mustard seed, it's about the kingdom which starts small and then it eventually can support life. Um, and in, even in this list of parable, 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 the, the disciples ask kind of a critical question, which is, why are you doing this? Like, why are you teaching us through parables? And, and he answers, uh, Jesus answers through his own word in Isaiah. Uh, that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So, um, what's, what's behind that is basically election, right? The idea that I need to address everyone, and I need some people to get it, and some people not to get it. And so, so parables. So that's, that's what precedes the whole um, passage that we're going to read here at the end, which starts in in verse 35. And again, I'll be reading out of the ESV, and and this is the part we're going to focus on. So, I'll read that now. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. And there ends the reading of God's word. So, we're going to dig in, and, and I'll, I'll try to unpack this for you. Bit, lots of context here, right? Um, so, obviously this revolves around, um, you know, a, a, a maritime setting. Sea of Galilee is actually freshwater, but... Um, it's, it's about the size of uh, Lake Winnipesaukee, in case, you know, you know up there, right? Um, and there's, there's boats involved, right? So in 1986, 
the Jesus boat was found. There's no proof that Jesus ever saw the boat, touched the boat, used the boat, but it was very indicative of boat construction from the time that Jesus walked the earth and in that region. And so it's called the Jesus boat. There's a museum in Israel. You can go see it or remnants of it, right? But um, I want to get you a sense of, of the size of it, right? Um, I've got my friend Dave here with a tape measure. Um, Dave, can you, can you hand me the um, one end of that? And I'll oh, get me the smart ends. Thanks. Yeah, smart end. yeah, walk down that way, and I'll tell you when to stop. Hold on, hold on, I can't even see it. Oh, 13, keep going. Yeah, 14, keep going, keep going, yeah. 17, 19, 20, 20, keep going. And stop there, walk it out. Okay, hold it, pull it tight. All right, that's 27 feet from him to me, right? That's the length of the boat. So if you could imagine, uh, you know, Jesus at one end being asleep, it's kind of got enough room for different sections for things to happen. So he wasn't like necessarily in the middle of everything, right? And if, we don't know how many other disciples were in there, but there's enough room for a bunch of people to do a bunch of stuff. And it's about eight feet wide, which... I think we'll get to here in a moment. Yeah, for those of you who aren't good at, at visualizing that. Yeah, so that's about eight feet wide at its widest. Uh, and it would have had a mast in the middle. Thanks, Steve. And it would have heard, you know, probably one sail. And it would have had uh, four oar locks, which presumably would be for four people, because I think eight feet wide, you probably couldn't have two of those. In any case... Four oarlocks, you could do wind power or manpower, uh, a rudder. And it had a really low draft angle, which means that it would be stable in, sh- in shallow water um, for throwing nets over. Uh, and, and the reason that becomes important, we'll, we'll, we'll get to, right? But that's, that's about where they were in this boat. And then a storm comes, right? So this region is notorious for bad weather, because just to the north, there's Mount Hermon and there's other mountains that have a lot of cold there. There's always, well, I, I, at least there was always snow on the top of Mount Hermon, so there's a lot of coldness and dampness up that way. And then to the, to the west of, um, of the Sea of Galilee, very hot, dry air. So if you've got a convergence of cold, moist air and hot, dry air, you get thunderstorms, you get bad weather. Uh, and it happens on the lake. So even though it's small, it gets really churned up and uh, can, can uh, become treacherous pretty quickly. So what's being told here was, was kind of normal uh, and, and definitely very dangerous. Now on top of that, the Jews had a fear, well, still do have a fear, of um, open water that's very deep. Uh, mostly a desert-dwelling people, right? So deep, open water, not common. But uh, in this case, the Sea of Galilee is probably like 200 feet deep in some places. And so that's really deep to people who are used to, you know, just trickling streams. And, and the reason that they have th- this cultural fear, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, verse 2. So really far back in the Bible, uh, where it says... The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So just from that, darkness, 
over something deep, murky, not descript, mysterious, strange darkness, associated with deep things, therefore, Sea of Galilee evil. Like, that's, that's where that came from. And I'm not making this stuff up. Um, that's, you know, that's out there for you to, to, dis- to discover as well. But it meant that the fishermen were, were kind of like on, on the edge of bad stuff. So kind of some, uh, some dodgy characters that the fishermen were. And, uh, and that would start to bear in on, uh, on some of what happens as we, as we unpack this. But even Luke, this is interesting, in Luke 8, and Luke is not a Jew writing about these things, he captures it, right? He says in Luke 8 uh, about the, um, the demons that get sent into the pigs. He says, and they begged him, that's the demons, uh, and him as Jesus, uh, not to command them to depart into the abyss. So this, this Greek um, historian gets it that the Sea of Galilee is not just seen as a lake. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a figure of hell. And, uh, and so that's where the demons go. Right? It makes sense in that passage. So that's kind of what the Jews were thinking about this lake. And, and we, can, we can say that that's, that's silly. They didn't have radar. They didn't have sonar. They didn't have depth finders or satellite images, and now we do, and so they're dumb and we're smart. But we have cultural fears as well. And all you need to do is look at Hollywood and see the vast amounts of money that is made off of movies that um, play off of these fears that, uh, you know, lots of things will cause some type of cataclysm, Armageddon, Doomsday, apocalyptic, right? It's either global warming, it's the pandemic, who would ever think, uh, World War III, most popular right now, alien invasions, like, there's some, like, foot in reality that those things have, and you'll hear people talk about that, and they're serious, and that's almost just as superstitious as people were back then, so we can't really say they're that different from us. But let me reread uh, a bit of that passage and see if some of it kind of emerges for you uh, with more meaning, right? I'll help you with some enunciation. So, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So, there are these phrases that that kind of give clues as to the, the mentality of the disciples, uh, and it's keyed into that there's, there's this fear, but now there's darkness as well. There's actual physical darkness because evening had come. And he says, let's go across. That's over the deep part. That's over the scary part. Like, you could maybe, like, scoot around the outside and stay within, like, you know, 10 to 15 feet. You'd be all right. But he says, we're going to go across this thing. And he mentions the other side. Now, in Mark 5, we end up finding out what the other side is. And that ends up being uh, this place where there's pagan worship, there's idolatry, and there's people who worship demons over there. So it's making all this worse, right? And then um, uh, I I love how I have missed this until I studied it this time. Uh, This little phrase, just as he was, and I looked it up in a bunch of different versions, and it's always there, right? It seems to imply 
First of all, that he is Jesus, just as Jesus was. It seems to imply there's something odd about that. Like perhaps the disciples thought that they should not go just as they were. Perhaps they needed some extra stuff, you know, like another bag lunch or more ropes or another sail or let me say goodbye to mom or whatever it is. But like, it seems as though Jesus is like, let's go. I'm ready. Are you ready? No, they're not ready because they, they're, they're gathering all these things in their heads that would seem like this is a really bad idea, Jesus. Uh, and what this all amounts to, um, oh, yeah, that was that note that I had. When, when it says just as he was, it made me think back to David when he fought Goliath, right? Um, Saul wanted to dress them all up. He's like, yeah, I can't do this because I haven't tested them. So David put those things off and just took his sling and, and, uh, and stones. So it, it seemed to reference that to me, but I don't have to, um, to prove that. But look, what all this adds up to is Jesus is pressing his finger right on the nerve center of their fear. He's saying, yeah, yeah, I, I know that bothers you. Yeah, and we're going to do it just because it bothers you. And that actually makes it seem like, well, what's he doing here? That, that doesn't seem like sweet, friendly Jesus that I know. And that seems a little bit antagonistic and maybe, maybe even mean. So here's, here's what I'll suggest to you that I think it means. Zoom out for a second. We're back looking at the entirety of Mark 4. Most of it is parables. Story with the meaning, story with the meaning, story with the meaning, keep going, story. right? Very passive, very much philosophical, theoretical. I feel like Jesus is saying, okay, I done told you enough. Now we're going to do something. Now it's going to get real, okay? This is very much, I think, uh, a mentality that parents can have. Towards the children, right? I told you, I told you twice, I told you three times, now you're going to see something, all right? That's what's going on here. It's a very typical Eastern didactic. It, Western didactics are theological, conceptual, philosophical. Eastern is, we're going to learn something by doing it together. They didn't want to do this together, but they were going to learn something. So, what happens? They get in the boat. Worst case scenario. Great windstorm road. So, I would just have to guess that most of the disciples were like, man, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen, right? And waves are breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. And, and this is where the, the construction of the boat that I mentioned kind of comes to bear, right? Because uh, if you've got a boat with a very shallow bottom, um, shallow draft angle, wide bottom... You don't have a lot of steering ability in that thing. And the boat is getting tossed around, and that's got to be really unnerving to people who want to take control of it. And I guarantee if you're in the boat, you want to take control over it too, right? <clears throat> Probably the mast, oh, sorry, the, the, the sail is down, couldn't be up in that kind of weather. Maybe the boom, boom is um, whipping around. People are trying to get oars to work. Um, the boat's filling up with water, which means likely to capsize or sink. Uh, 
a lot of bad things are, are potentially happening here. And, and let me remind you, like, no Coast Guard, right? Like, no helicopters come in with a guy down a line to nine line you, right? So this is your on your own. Plus, probably no lights, right? Very bad storm. If you got, there's no, like, flashlight. You, if you had a torch or if you had a lantern or something, I'm sure it's out. So they're doing all this confusion in the dark, right? That's going to add to the high stress level. Probably can't see shoreline. Like, no big skyscrapers with lights or lighthouses. You go, okay, that's where I need to go. Like, it's probably very confusing, very scary. And likely, uh, this had uh, um, kind of... I'm looking for a word I can't think of because I'm tired. Um, uh, intensify, but we use that one. Uh, over, over some period of time. So at first, I think the disciples might be like, yeah, yeah, don't wake him yet. We'll figure it out. To the point like, okay, I'm getting really annoyed that he's not up yet to, do you not care that we're perishing? Like, there's definitely some attitude there, right? Like, no longer is, is there a, a reverence for your rabbi in that statement. Um, kind of accusatory, right? And uh, press pause on that, but I, I just want you to think for a moment, what would it take to be sleeping in that, right? Like an extreme amount of relaxation. Because you would have had to expect that the, the boat is getting violently shifted and you're sleeping through it. You would have probably been able to hear a lot of the... Uh, the disciples yelling at one another, and you're probably getting splashed by water. Like, all that is not waking you up. Like, that is very, very relaxed. And, and yet, uh, just asleep, not dead. It, it's, it's, uh, it stands out. It stands out to me. I think it should stand out to us. That it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's not miraculous, but it's weird enough that it, it's, it's probably there for a reason. And I have, I have, a, um, I have a, a theory on, on, on why it's there. I think it relates back to one passage of Scripture and forward to another. The one that it relates back to, I think, is more of a parallel. The one it relates forward to is kind of... I'll, the best word I've come up with is reflexive. So does anybody think that they know what passage, which passage, any of the two passages I'm talking about? What does this look like? Any Bible scholars in there? Be a good time to say amen or something. Maybe pull that in. Okay, Jonah. Noah has, okay, I'll, I'll go on. Jonah was... Uh, called of God to prophesy to Nineveh. He said, uh, no thanks, I'm going the other way, gets in a boat, and what happens? There's a windstorm. The crew finds him, where? Asleep in the bottom. Right? And then, I'll start reading what they do. Uh, then they, that's the crew, cried out to the Lord, please Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And this, the men, uh, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. 
So Jonah became a sacrifice for all the mess that was going on, and instantly there was calm. Right? We, we also know that then Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. He was there uh, three days. There's a lot of references to what Jesus would be and what his story would be like. And I think this is purposeful to reference that. But also, it looks forward. Last chance for anyone who wants to tell me where that looks forward to. Acts 27. Okay, 27. Um, okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, thank you. Who said that? Right on. Um, I'll give you a gold star later. So I had something different. I had Matthew 26. That's really valid, though. I appreciate that. Um, so Matthew 26 is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the point of no return for Jesus. The last place that he can say, you know what, forget this. I'm leaving before they capture me. And he goes to the garden to pray, and he asks the disciples to pray with him. Right? And I'll pick up at 2640. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus really would be perishing. Right? He, he knew this would end in death. Whereas the disciples were accusing Jesus of not respecting you know, their mortality. So, so that's all, all very much in play. But what does Jesus do? He gets up. It says, He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Wind and sea, peace be still, and it happened. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, in doing that, it's also important that he's talking to both wind and water. We covered the water bit, right? Water, big, vast quantities, really deep. That's bad, that's evil. That, that reminds us of hell, reminds us of Genesis chapter 1. But why, why the wind? Why does he have to speak to the wind? You Reformed folks should know Ephesians 2 by the back of your hand. So it says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in saying, peace be still, he demonstrates and he vocalizes authority over all powers and principalities. Amen. Amen, sister. I appreciate that. Thank you. So he is saying, he is showing, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Not the wave, not the water, the sea, not the anything else, deep stuff. I'm the Lord. All right? And that message is, is clear. And in that, we see a shift that happens because he then addresses them, right? He says, why are you so afraid? He recognizes their fear. Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear because of him, right? The fear went from being focused on we're going to die, scared of waves, scared of winds, to who's this guy? 
who has power over that, now fears on Jesus. That shift in fear, that transition, is what is essential in this passage. It's what this is all about. That's what Jesus is addressing by saying, have you still no faith? He he is referencing, I've been with you so long. I've been doing miracles up and down the street. You still don't get it? It takes another one? Like, I'm saying the same thing. You even said at this point, uh, disciples, that I'm the Messiah. I'm testifying of it. I'm Lord. Why do you not get that? That's what this whole passage is about. No longer is it about storytelling, nursery school, simple stuff like that. In the clutch moments, who do you believe is Lord? Who's your Lord? What are you afraid of? Perhaps you lose of losing companionship. Well, the Bible talks to that. Matthew says, uh, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're afraid of losing your health or your strength. And First Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If you're losing wealth, that scares you. He says in Psalm 50, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And, amen. And and responding to that, it says, uh, or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, would give him a stone. Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to uh, those who ask him? So if he has all that stuff, and he's that kind, there's no need to fear losing wealth. What about losing freedom? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's from Isaiah. And even if we're afraid of losing our very faith, 2 Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he can't deny himself. So then I ask you the same question that the disciples asked. Who then is this? Is Jesus the Lord of your life or not? Obviously, the Sunday school answer is yes. Yes, he is. Jesus is my Lord. But really, all the time, every day, I think we need to allow the Lord to refocus the affections of our heart. It's time to lay down our unholy fears and pick up holy fears. It's time to allow the Holy Spirit to do some heart surgery. 
And I mean, I mean here and now. Because what's not going to happen is that y'all going to go home and say, yeah, I really thought it was interesting the way he used that tape measure. <laughs> if that's your thought, you might not have, it might have been better if you didn't come today. This is an opportunity for you to get close to what Jesus This is an opportunity for you to shed some of that baggage that you've been carrying around that's been keeping you from being the man or woman of God that he wants you to be. We're not going to waste this. We're not going to just say, oh, that was a decent sermon. I'm glad he made it through. We're going to spend some time doing some dirty work. And I'm going to start. Because I'm the one setting it up. It would be wrong for me to lead you into that if I don't go first. I want y'all to think, if you haven't already gotten there, of something that really scares you. Some fear that grips you. Something that ruins your life. If you end up picking something simple, you have very meager results. If you pick something big and hard, you get life change. You get paradigm shift. If you're a halfway kind of person, then go pick arachnophobia and say that's your thing. But if you want to tackle some of the really dark stuff, we're about to do that. And I will respectfully do it with your comfort in mind. I'm not going to bring this out of anybody, but I will testify of my own fears. When I ask myself that question, what, what arises in me is a long-standing fear of abandonment. It matters in this that I'm an only child. It also matters that nobody in my family is a Christian. When the Lord asked me to start following Him, things did not go well at home. They went very badly. And my fears of abandonment became real. It was the same way in my life that it was for the disciples in this passage. You afraid of that? We're going right for it. We're going to address that. You're going to have to see that I'm different than your parents. Right? This remains an issue for me because things aren't copacetic still. And there are going to be I fear funerals that I'm asked to say something at. And how are you going to ask me to speak at somebody's funeral that has just gone to hell? How are you going to ask me to say that to you to cause further division in our family? I should be saying, I should be speaking life into this and saying well God has prepared me for such a time as this that he will give me the words in that moment in that hour that I should have mercy on those who doubt and snatch others out of the fire as Jude says and ultimately I should have more fear of the one who has the power to cast my whole body and soul into hell than anything my family can say about me That's speaking truth. That's speaking life into that situation. That's quelling that fear. That's readjusting my focus 
from what it should not be on to Jesus. Right? So that's what I'm asking you to do. Something like that. Starting right now. So if you would, please all close your eyes, bow your heads. And I want you to search for that thing. I want you to ask yourself, what is that thing that I need to address? And if you don't have it, if it doesn't you know, come to your mind immediately, let me help you. Typically, if you follow your sin patterns back to their origin, you'll find fear. There's something in there that you're trying to become less afraid of by doing against God's will. And if that doesn't work, just think about how the devil typically attacks you. That should shed some light on that chink in your arm or on that thing, that that Achilles heel, that thing that always gets you down. There's going to be fear surrounding that also. And I want you to begin to pray through that. Pray against that. Speak life into that to yourself silently in the pews. No one needs to know what you're going through right now. It's you and Jesus. And I'm going to speak some words of affirmation. And if you can grab onto one of those that applies, then you grab onto that. And you keep saying that in your head until your fear has been readjusted to being on Jesus alone. And then I'm going to be quiet for 60 seconds. And that might seem like the longest 60 seconds of your life. But at the end of that, I'm going to speak one more word of scripture and I'm going to pray. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our strong tower. He is our shield and our strength. He commands angels to bear us up. He opens and no one can shut. He shuts and no one can open. He goes before us to prepare a place for us. He knows every hair on your heads. And he stores up all of your tears in a bottle. He dwells in unapproachable light. And darkness cannot exist in his presence. A bruised reed he will not break. Nor will he quench a smoldering wick.
People of God, listen to me clearly. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Father, we thank you for hearing us. We thank you for dealing skillfully in our hearts. We would pray that you would free us from our bondage. We would pray that you would get all of our fear, all of our reference, all of our love. Please forgive us of our actions. Please take us to yourself quickly. In Christ's name, amen.